to The Path and the Practice, a podcast dedicated to sharing the professional origin stories of the attorneys at Foley & Lardner LLP, a full-service law firm with over 1,000 lawyers across the U.S. and abroad. I'm your host, Alexis Robertson, Director of Diversity and Inclusion at Foley. In each episode of this podcast, you'll hear me in conversation with a different Foley attorney. You'll learn about each guest's unique background, path to law school, and path to Foley & Lardner. Essentially, you'll hear the stories you won't find on their professional bios. And of course, you'll learn a bit about their practice. Now, let's get to the episode. This episode features a conversation with Aleda Castro. Aleda is a summer associate in Foley's New York office, and in this discussion, Aleda reflects on growing up in the Westlake, MacArthur Park neighborhood of Los Angeles, attending Wesleyan University for undergrad, and UCLA Law School. This discussion, like most discussions on the path and the practice, was really interesting for me. Aleda is a part of the third summer class that I've been at Foley and Lardner for, but the first sort of normal summer class that we've had since the COVID-19 pandemic. So I actually had the opportunity to get to know and to meet Aleda in person. But of course, this is our first time sitting down and having a really in-depth discussion. And it is extremely interesting because what she really does is reflect on life as a first-generation American. She discusses her mother's experience immigrating to the U.S. at 18. And she talks about what it was like growing up in a predominantly Spanish-speaking neighborhood, how that shaped her worldview, but also the difficulty of then transitioning to college and to law school. She reflects on what it was like to not have the same social and cultural capital as her classmates and shares how she managed to adjust. And then, of course, after going through a latest story, I get her to talk about what it was like to be a summer associate at Foley and Lardner. She discusses the, some of the assignments she did this summer, how she got them, and also a little bit about the OCI process that got her to Foley in the first place. And then, of course, we conclude the episode by having Aleda give some of her advice to students, which includes the importance of being your authentic self. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Aleda Castro. Aleda, welcome to the podcast. We're going to start how these always start, which is me asking you to give a short introduction. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. My name is Aleda. I am from Los Angeles, California, and I'm currently a law student at UCLA. And you are a summer associate at Foley and Lardner, which we will talk about eventually. (laughs) But before we get there, let's talk about you. Tell me a little bit about where are you from or where you grew up? So uh, like I mentioned the beginning. I'm from Los Angeles. I grew up in the Westlake MacArthur Park neighborhood, and I spent most of my life there up until college, with the exception of two years when I was a kid when my family moved to El Salvador. So I lived for two years in El Salvador as well as a kid. All right. So we're going to talk about a bit about all the things you just said. So I think you said the neighborhood is Westlake MacArthur. Do you say MacArthur Park? I don't know anything about LA. (laughs) So tell me a little bit about like, if I said like, where do you write down on your mailing address? Where is that? And then could you tell me just a little bit like a snapshot of life growing up? Let's say I found you in elementary school or middle school. What's life like for little Aleda? My family doesn't live there anymore. But I think the best way to describe it is it's really close to the downtown LA area. It's a predominantly immigrant community. So it's a lot of Mexican and Central American immigrants and sort of their descendants. So growing up, I was around a lot of people that looked like me, uh, which changed drastically once I got to undergrad. But I think as a kid, I really enjoyed playing outside. I was also a bit 
very focused in school. I loved learning. I loved the challenges that came with school and just being challenged because I really liked when I exceeded at the challenge. And I also loved praise as a kid. I liked when the kids, when my teachers were like, she did so well, look at you this. You wanted the gold star. You were working for gold stars on the chart. <laughs> that was me as a kid. And also, um, I, for most of like my formative years, I did grow up with a single parent, just my mom. And so as the oldest kid, there was also just a lot of responsibilities that came with, you know, being almost like a second parent in a lot of ways. Okay. Where do I, there's a couple things we have to now, I have to unpack as I always do on this show. The first thing I do want to touch on is you said you grew up in a community with people who looked like you. And I don't want to let that slip by. I think we're going to talk a little bit when we get to undergrad, how it impacted you to them be in a community where people did not look like you. But I know for me, like I grew up in a community where people did not look like me. And it's just really interesting, I think, to explore a little bit because, you know, getting, I don't know, just jumping right into it. Like if you grew up as like a white person in America, there's a good chance that you don't think about this. The people in your community mostly look like you. And there's definitely exceptions to that. But to grow up in the U.S. as a person of color, Sometimes you're in a community of people of similar backgrounds and sometimes you're not. And so for you, and you also mentioned spending some time in El Salvador, but tell me even more about your community and maybe how you're, and tell me about your mom, I guess, is where I, I, I'm getting and how she landed there. Yeah, just say more words. <laughs> yeah, so my mom migrated here when she was around, I think, 18 or 19. So she was she was really young and she, because my grandma was already in that area, that's kind of where where she landed when she came here. And so she had me when she was really young. She was around 21 and, you know, figuring it out. And I think to this day, my mom doesn't really speak English. She um, understands it if you speak to her and she'll respond to you in Spanish. And I think growing up in a community like where I did, that's possible. You can go to stores and it's actually expected that you speak Spanish. If you speak English to people, they'll look at you like, what are you doing here? You're in the wrong community. And so that... I think that made it possible for her to really be able to kind of keep that part of her culture. And it's why I'm so fluent myself. And then also the time that I lived in El Salvador has really helped me master Spanish where I can read, write it and speak it like and switch back and forth. Well, and tell me a little bit about your siblings. And then we got to talk about the I mean, if there's I don't know how old you were when you moved to El Salvador, but we'll get to that. But tell me about your siblings as well. Yeah. So I have three younger siblings following me. I have a brother who's 22 now. Wow. He's 22. My sister's 16. And then my baby brother is 12. And so I love all my siblings. I think with the two younger ones, because of our age differences, those are the ones that I kind of helped sort of parent more. Yes, definitely more of the parental figure. Absolutely. Especially with the the baby, because by the time he was born, I was already like 14, I believe. And so that's why to me, you're like my baby. He's my little baby. <laughs> exactly. And like people are like, oh, baby, they think I'm going to say my baby brother's five. And I'm like, no, he's 12, but he's my baby. <laughs> So you're helping your mother navigate. And like you said, the community allowed her to navigate without, you know, anywhere near mastery of the language. But at some point, you all moved. Was she from El Salvador and you moved back? Or how did how did that work? And how old were you? Yeah, so I think I was around eight when this happened. At that point, we were still with my father and kind of what happened, and this is a little heavy, but my father was actually deported to El Salvador. And that's kind of how my mom at that point was like, I want my kids to grow up with their dad. And so we're going to go back. But I think at one point when they were over there and like, that's when they were getting separated too. But my mom was like, 
I want my kids to have the opportunities that only the U.S. can offer, and I'm not going to deprive them of that, so we're going back. And that's kind of how we came back. And so for, and that's the thing also, I think why education was always so important for me was because like that was always emphasized as like coming from that immigrant parent background of like, I've made these sacrifices for you to have access to this. And so especially as the oldest, it was always like really emphasized as like, you're going to forge that path. And so you came back and I'm guessing you're around 10. Yeah, I was around 10 at the time. Yeah, I was like two years. Same neighborhood. Yeah, same neighborhood. We moved back with, uh, we were living with my grandma at the time. And so, yeah, it was just the same area. And that's kind of, we, we stopped moving around after that. Well, and what you said about, and I think, you know, most people, particularly if you end up, you know, in a you know great law school and a large law firm, there's somebody in your life who really emphasized education, like you got that from from somewhere. But understanding in terms of that, you know, and I, I, I'm projecting and guessing based on what I've learned from others, but in terms of the immigrant experience and that knowing that education is your ticket in terms of like progress and security. And if you earn certain credentials, like nobody can ever take that away from you is such a a key thing. And by the way, a theme of once you become a lawyer is also nobody can take your training away from you (laughs) once you actually learn how to be a lawyer, which maybe we'll get to. But I really appreciate you sharing that and your experience. And maybe it'll kind of get woven in as we keep talking. But as you know, a really important part of this show is showing there's no prototypical path to being a lawyer. And so it's just important that we share some of that, a little bit more of that personal stuff. So people know it's like, no, I wasn't just given, (laughs) like I wasn't, I wasn't given this. (laughs) Okay. So let's move forward a little bit. Tell me a bit, say you're now in high school, you're starting to think about college. I'm guessing, do you have any, I don't know if you have general commentaries on the experience of high school, but also that process of figuring out college and how you navigated it. So for me, it was always really odd because education was emphasized a lot at home. And like I said, I love the praise of doing well also. But it was almost like college was something that I just saw on TV. And it was like, what's well, the thing that you do after high school? But there was not, not necessarily a blueprint at home of this is how you get there. And I was lucky that I had teachers in high school that sort of saw that you know, in me, that spark in me that they were like, I'm going to take you under my wing and this is how you're going to do it. And then my junior year, I learned about this college access program called One Voice. It's like a local program in LA. And the goal was to introduce, you know, students like me to the broad range of schools, especially liberal arts schools that basically cover your full need. And so it was like the Vassars, the Amherst, the Westlands, which is where I went. And they helped us apply. They even covered like our first year they cover our flights, they covered our books. And so it was just like, it was a huge help. And I think that getting into that program was sort of my stepping stone to everything now. Well, a real, so like a real like turning point, a pivotal thing. And you know, well, we like to think you'd have figured it out without that, but still that's huge. And I think you also touched on something that it's really easy to forget. And many of us has experienced it in some way, but many haven't. Like if you are in a household or even a community where maybe, you know, going to college isn't necessarily a foregone conclusion or not everybody has gone. Just knowing like when you apply, because I think it's really easy to become a senior and be like, all right, I graduate in a semester. Let me figure this out. You didn't know that people were navigating this last year, essentially, or you don't know when you're supposed to turn in your FAFSA which I assume is like, and there's, there's actually a whole lot of steps that if you don't have exposure or someone to guide you, you'll completely miss them. I actually remember vividly 
trying to figure out how to do FAFSA. And I forgot what the other thing is called for like private schools that you also have to fill out. And my mentor helped me before college, but then trying to do it as a freshman for sophomore year, I was just so lost. And then I just remember so clearly a friend just talking with her dad about it over the phone and he was helping her figure it out. And I was like, wait, people can do that with their parents? And it was just like, yeah, I'm like your parents. I didn't even think that could be a thing. It was just so eye-opening. No, because I'm telling my parents, like I'm telling, like for you, like I'm telling my mom, I know for me and both, so both of my parents went to college, but you know, that would have been what, 30 years earlier. I don't know that that FAFSA was a thing. And so it was me at 17, like reading through this and saying, hey, mom or dad, like I need your tax or like whatever it is you're giving. And it's really complicated stuff. And like, I mean, and and I had parents who generally like were more in the know, but even then, but so now we, we can already see how, you know, if we fast forward, like I have kids, you know, if you, if you have kids at some point when they're going to college, you'll be like, hey, I think there's something we should do with financial aid. And you might Google that for them versus them telling you. Okay. So you, this program helps you navigate your exposed number of schools. You settle on Wesleyan and you go to Wesleyan. You talked a little bit about how it sounds like that was an adjustment, but t- say, tell me more. What was what was that like, the transition to college? Yeah, so it was a, a big transition. And I think at the moment, I underscored how big it was. And now looking back, I'm like, you were 17 years old with not much money to your name, just like, you know, a bit of money that my family was able to give me and I moved across the country. And luckily, I mean, the reason why I chose Wesleyan was because it was nearly a full ride. So it was just... I was like, this is where I'm going then. And it was, I did visit. I knew people that didn't visit, but it was a huge change from LA. I mean, it was Middletown, Connecticut. <laughs> I was gonna say, it's in Connecticut. You went from LA to Connecticut. It's Middletown, Connecticut. It's a small town. I was used to a city life around people that looked like me. And I think that's when it really hit me like a minority. And I never really felt like a minority in my community because people looked like me. And I think the other big thing that was different was just like social capital that people brought because even other students of color that were low income, there was a lot that were from New York and did like prep for prep and went to these schools and they had that social capital from like high school or from whenever they did it. And I didn't have that. So there was just also a lingo of trying to catch up And then obviously also the financial aspect of I knew there were people there paying full tuition and I was at the complete other end of that. And then my freshman year of like working in jobs where it was like service jobs and serving my classmates, like cleaning tables in the dining hall and all that. So it was really drastic in that way of like, we're in very different positions navigating the school. Was that essentially like a work study sort of thing or? Yeah, it was a work study thing. And I think after freshman year, I kind of learned the jobs that I should be doing to not be because it really affected my mental health, too, in a lot of ways. And I, I kind of learned that I was like an assistant for like the Romance Languages Department. And I just sat at a desk and I could do my homework. And then I did other jobs. But I think like the the more service centered aspect of it, I think it just made it so drastic. And I was like, I don't want to be doing this because it just it, I don't feel well, like I need the money, but I don't feel well. Sorry, I'm nodding because there's so much in what you just said. And you're not the first person on the podcast to talk about about that experience of, you know, a couple of our partners, I think one who went to Dartmouth, one who went to Harvard, and you, and this is why this, once again, that's why this show is so important. You read their bios for you, you went to Wesleyan. 
But your experience was not the same as every person who went to Wesleyan because depending on, like you said, the culture shock of showing up, the you know socioeconomic differences, all sorts of things. And I, I know for me, when I went to college, and I don't think I had as big of a gap, but the fact that there were international students at this school whose parents were just writing checks, just a straight check, because I knew as and I, so I went to American University for undergrad, and there's a like kind of an international contingent. They don't give financial aid. Like it's just not a thing. I never knew that many people growing up whose parent could just, you know, be like, here's fifty thousand dollars. <laughs> like <laughs> not be a big deal. And that there's just so much else going into that experience of also, because we haven't even talked about your major yet, what you were studying. There's so many other levels that are being being navigated. And I know at the time you're like, this is what people do. They go to college, but you look back now, and you're like, I was 17. And moved across the country to a place where I didn't know anyone <laughs> and had to figure it all out. And obviously you did, but it is it is worth pausing on and being like, wow, that was something. So what was your major? What was the thought process in terms of what you wanted to focus on or what you wanted to do at Wesleyan? Yeah. So I think for me, I was always really interested in like law and policy work and just exploring like our environment in like a social political sense. And wait, so, by the way, why? You sort of always, inter- why? Why were you always interested in these things? So I think for me, it's part of like also just like the environment I grew up in, especially um, immigration has always been something that I've been interested in just because of my family's experience, my community's experience. And so the law seemed like a way of like, you could learn this and wield it in a way to help people. And so that's kind of what was my driving point. But I wasn't sure if it's like a law kind of way or a policy. And so it was always kind of like trying to figure out which of the two. And so I gravitated towards American studies with a concentration on racial and ethnic studies because I was just taking classes like African-American studies, Latino studies. And it was something that I just I was like, I didn't know you could learn about this in like a critical academic way, you know? And so it was just, I was so in awe. Yeah, I was so in awe of it. And so I was like, I like really enjoyed it. And so I think there was a point of, there was a bit of an awakening in me too, though. And I was just always really angry in college where I was like, wow, this is systemic. Like what? And, but I think I grew out of that. I think I, I figured out a way to deal with that in a way that was, um, productive for myself. But yeah, but there was also a moment in which I kind of had an awakening and I was like, this is really messed up for lack of a better way to say it. Well, and it's hard because of course we don't want to go off on like a two hour discussion about, you know, systemic racism and exclusion (laughs) in the United States. And I laugh as I say that because it's laugh or cry, I suppose. But it is really important and powerful to understand that a lot of the way things look in this country is due to the social or historical systems that were set up. And that does not mean that it's impossible to excel or achieve. But generally, when we see certain trends and people in certain parts of the country and different things societally, there's there's usually a larger explanation for that. And we see that across all sorts of, you know, and we, so we call them underrepresented populations, but a lot of times that just means systemically excluded populations. So- Yeah, our language is slowly starting to catch up with the realities of what's going on in the world. So you also, so you've touched a lot on what it was like, sort of like mentally and culture shock. Was there an academic adjustment at all in going to Wesleyan or was that somewhat straightforward? 
there was a big academic adjustment. I feel like the way people talked was so different. And then the way people talked in class settings and how entitled some people also felt to take up space. While I was like, I'm still processing and trying to figure out what I want to share or if I want to share or just listen. But, but it was an adjustment. I think once I caught up to it, I was like able to wield it well, but it was something that I kind of had to to adjust to. And I'm lucky that I had professors that really, I remember the first time I got a C was in college and it was on this paper and the professor, because I was so concerned, I went to his office hours and she walked me through, this is what I want. This is how you do it. And you can rewrite it and I'll give you a new grade. But just having someone kind of do that. And like, it was again, kind of that experience in high school where people saw that I care about this. It's just, I don't know how to do it. And can you help me? Well, and you're, there's just other stuff going on that not everybody else has to deal with. And sometimes I'll boil a lot of this just down to how much of your energy are you able to channel to certain things. And so when you're, you know, navigating this new environment, far from your family, all this stuff, like your bandwidth is, it looks different. Like more of your bandwidth is being used for other things. And we talk about this, you know, in the workplace in the context of, you know, as a DEI professional, if like, like covering, right? Like, if it just takes more of your energy to maybe pretend to be someone you're not, then it's less to channel to your work. <laughs> and so it's just, I don't know, there's, it, it, it connects to so many things in life, but I'm, I appreciate you sharing that because I think that's an experience a lot of people have had. All right. So you, you spend the four years at Wesleyan, you get a degree, then what, what was the thought process post-graduation? I want to do X. And then, and of course, what did you actually do? Yeah, so I knew by senior year, I knew I was going to go on to law school. I just knew that I was behind in terms of I couldn't go straight through because I hadn't done, you know, the LSAT and all of that. And I knew I needed a break. I felt really burnt out also. And so um, initially, I thought I was going to do a joint JD PhD because I was in the Mellon Mays uh, undergraduate research fellowship. And I thought I wanted to be doing research in Central American studies and the law. But I kind of realized I didn't really like academia in that way. Once I wrote a senior thesis, I was like, we're all just talking to each other there and engaging with all these theories. And I mean, not to, I mean, people enjoy that. I realized I didn't. And I was like, I could do everything I want to do with just the JD and be fine. And so what I did, I really, it's always been my dream to come to New York. I wanted to do it during undergrad and it didn't happen. And then I wanted to do it post undergrad and it also didn't happen. I couldn't find a job while at school. And so I didn't have the safety net to just move to a new city without a job. So I went back home and um, I was trying to find legal assistant jobs, but I couldn't find anything. And then I was offered a position to be a student advisor for a blueprint test prep and they do LSAT prep. So it was kind of perfect because at my interview, they were like, yeah, we'll give you free test prep whenever you go back to school. So it was it was kind of perfect in that way. You know, it, I wasn't necessarily in the legal field, but I was still in proximity to it through the LSAT. And something that was immensely helpful. <laughs> so that's kind of what I ended up doing. I lived with my family and just worked for two years before coming back to school. And what was the actual 
role for you you said what the title was but what did you do during those two years so yeah so as a student advisor I was kind of the uh, front facing we were the people that you you know whenever you go on a website and there's like a little chat pop-up that's like do you need help I was on the other end of that (laughs) so you know what it's like to be on the other side of that yeah so it was kind of like a customer service education balance because Sometimes it was just trying to sell them a course, but then it was also like people being like, well, I'm not sure what course will work for me, the self-paced, the in-person. It was like, what are your study habits like? What's your time commitment like? What's your timeline like? What schools do you want to go to? So it was just a lot of like exploring and like planning for people. And I think that that helped me explore and plan for myself. I was just about to say before you said that, I was like, I imagine you learned a few things from that to apply to your own process. Yeah, I definitely did. So I was... That was the advantage. So eventually, are you able to say, all right, it's time for me to take this prep course? And what what was that that timing like? And how did you start figuring out, I guess, both the LSAT, but then law school? Again, with, you know, college access programs, I was in a law school access program called the UCLA Law Fellows Program. And with that, it was really helpful because I received a mentor that sort of helped me also with my timeline. And by the way, how did you get connected to that program? I got connected to it. I believe one of my friends had gone through it, like one of my friends from high school. And I also had a friend that worked in undergrad admissions at UCLA who was like, hey, don't forget UCLA has this. You should apply. And so the goal of the program is to try to diversify the legal field by providing that mentorship and help. And so through that, they were kind of able to help me you should start thinking about LSAT prep now. You should, yeah, the timing, They, I got advice on my personal statements, addendum, all that. And they also give you free LSAT prep. I already had it through my job, so I didn't end up using it. But I had like double the prep available, which was, it was a, a good place to be at. Yeah, because those classes aren't cheap. Like they cost actual money. <laughs> so yes. Yeah, and then once a month during the spring, we had academies where we would go to UCLA Law. We had panels with alumni from the program. And then part of it was also a professor from UCLA Law teaching a mock class. And we'd get cases beforehand to read. And then it would be like being in a law school classroom. I was like, okay, they would do some showing also of like saying, okay, well, if a professor says, what's the, what was the issue in the case? This is what they mean. So now tell me, what was the issue in the case? And so that was also really helpful to sort of see, this is is what law school is like, and this is what I want to do. I love this so much also. Like I'm I'm getting a little like chills kind of as you say it, because it also gave you the opportunity to see if this was going to be a fit for you. I mean, in some ways you were very much committed, but still you got to kind of peek behind the curtain (laughs) before applying and really committing to a place, which I think is... Fantastic. And we already touched on this before with the college thing, but same thing with the timing. What's the timing between you taking the LSAT? You know, and I have navigated all this law school stuff and applied to law school a long time ago. I mean, I graduated from undergrad in 2005. So I was thinking about this in like 2003, 2004. But I remember learning things about how, you know, applying earlier is important because right? Like as the deans of deans of admissions at the various schools are building their classes, you want them to consider you when they have a whole lot of seats left <laughs> versus just like four. It makes it harder to get in when you don't apply as early. Yeah. I was told the magic time to send stuff in was around uh, Thanksgiving break because you're beating the rush of the winter break applications that are going to stack up for three weeks. 
and then they're not going to look at them until January. And so it's like you want to beat that winter break rush. And so I was a bit after Thanksgiving. I was like really beginning of December, but I still beat the winter break rush. Beat it. And you did okay. Like we'll talk about, but like you, you did okay. But stuff like that I think is really important because I, I think when you don't know some of those mechanics and you just think, well, it's all about my undergrad grades and my LSAT. When many of these schools, like the personal statements are really important, but also there's just the practicalities of how many spots left do we have in this class? Do you want to be considered when there's a lot of spots left? Or when there's like three, what, when do you, and so it also is just timing can really impact your ability to get into a school. Exactly. And I think for me, my LSAT wasn't like amazing. I had a really good GPA. I had a good personal statement because I got a lot. I worked on it a lot, but my LSAT wasn't there. And so that's exactly what I was told also was like, do you want to get considered when there's a few spots? And then that's when that LSAT might make a difference or earlier when they have the ability to really look at you in a well-rounded way and kind of be like, okay, the LSAT probably isn't make or break now. That is wonderful advice. And, you know, mostly law students listen to this, but we do get some people that are pre-law. That is some key advice right there. So I know where you ended up going to school and you said where you went, but tell me more about how you settled on UCLA. So I was already familiar with UCLA Law because of the Law Fellows Program. I mean, the academies were there. And so I knew the campus. I knew some of the faculty. But like I said, I always wanted to be in New York City. It was just a dream that I wanted to make happen. And I was between UCLA and Columbia. And when it came down to decision time, I was, it was April of 2020. And so it was just a really scary time. I was like, do I really want to leave my family, go to a completely new city? One month or so in, one and a half months into a global pandemic. Exactly. So, and then financial aid wise, Columbia costed more. And then I was like, I'm going to be in a new city. There's this pandemic. We don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. And New York is, I think in that time is getting hit really hard with COVID. I was actually here literally a week before everything closed down. And I was so scared that I had brought COVID back home because I was riding the subway back and forth between Brooklyn and into Columbia. Yeah, it was a really scary time. And I just decided, you know what, I could stay at home and do law school and I'll defer my New York dream. (laughs) And so that's what I did. So I ended up staying at UCLA Law. And then I I did move out, though. I didn't live at home for one else just because three younger siblings all doing school at home. It just wasn't going to work out for me as a law student, you know, in that environment. Wow. It's just so, I mean, I've been here, I've been in the U.S. the last two and a half years. I know it happened with the pandemic, but that essentially that like e-law school thing where you, I don't know how long you were virtual for, but I feel for all the law students who many, some of whom I know didn't meaningfully spend much time on campus until like their 3L year, uh, depending on the recent timing of things. So did you start virtually with law school then? Or did you get a little bit of, yeah, I see you nodding, but yeah. One L was uh, virtual and there were parts of two L, if I'm remembering correctly, where we were hybrid. But yeah, all of one L was virtual. And so that was an added challenge to law school because I think something that was really emphasized was that community is so big and it was really hard to build community 
when we're all virtual. I think if we add, say, 15 years or 20 years and you're advising law students, you'll be like, well, one thing you have to remember is I started law school in 2020 and my first year was remote. It'll be like the your equivalent of like I walked uphill in the snow both ways, except it was like, I don't know why you're complaining. You get to see people in person. <laughs> like that makes the difference. I mean, even seeing the, the well, not tools, but the one else, I was like, you are all building community. They're like so clicky and really close within the first couple of weeks. I'm like, wow. I was like, I didn't have that. I learned where the library was my tool year. Oh my God. Like I said, it's laugh or cry. And now you kind of have to laugh because you made it through, but I can only imagine how difficult that was because, you know, as you've listened to this podcast before, the question I always ask is, what was the transition like you know, to law school? And of course, we've talked a little bit how it was so different from what most people experience. But I will ask you more broadly in terms of the academic adjustment because of the program. You'd already spent some time at UCLA. You'd had some connections there. I'm imagining that that eased things in, in terms of the academics. But, but then you also have a global pandemic thrown on top of it. So how was it for you? One of fall was bad. I'll say that because there was the pandemic in November, we had elections also that, yeah, that November we had elections. It was coming out of a summer of all the protests and there were curfews both from the protests and then from the pandemic. It was just a really odd environment to then be like, and like people were dying. There was a lot going on and it was a really just odd environment to be like, okay, we're going to pretend everything is okay, even though we're all on Zoom. And I was like, I need to study torts and read this McPherson case that is old law and doesn't even apply anymore just for the sake of knowing it. And it was just a really odd time. And then once the time changed, I had a class that ended at 4.45 and I would look outside and it was already dark at 4.45. And I was like, well, now I got to go on and do my readings, I guess, until like 10 or 11 p.m. And I don't want to be a downer for listeners, but I think you're reflecting. I don't. I think no matter where you were in life, what what you were doing, we've all been through a really difficult time. And I know we're still very much navigating now, but it's obviously it's it's different. And so what you were taking me back to is around that time is actually when I launched this podcast because I'd only been at Foley about three months before the world changes in March of 2020. I have to get on the phone at like my, what am I, you know, I'm new to the firm. No one knows who I am, what I'm doing. I need to know how our lawyers are being impacted. I get on the phone. I talked to about a hundred of them on the phone and I happen to elicit some really great stories from many of them. And amongst the zillion other things we should be doing, I talked to Jen Patton, our now chief talent officer and say, Hey, people here have really amazing stories. Maybe I should launch a podcast. And she's like, yeah, you should. And I couldn't believe she said that. But just as all this was going on, and because this is like a passion project of mine, right? Like there's no like job description is also a podcast host. Everything with George Floyd happens. So I go down the path on this around April. I believe George Floyd's May, the murder of George Floyd's May of 2020. You know, one of many people who's been, you know, unjustifiably uh, murdered and other names that we could add to that long list. But as you know, you know, and all of us know that something was different right? This like catalyst for this renewed understanding of racial injustice and the lack of equity and all this. And so at the time to be a diversity professional, suddenly everyone's turning to you like, what should we do? 
Um, and many of us are like the same things we've been telling you to do, by the way, but now you're listening to me. Uh, but I vividly remember at that time being like, if I wasn't already down the road on this show, I would not be doing this. It is absolutely insane that I am trying to do this extra thing that nobody asked for at that time. But I'm glad I did because it allowed us to engage with some of the topics around race in America in a far more nuanced way. Um, it's not a coincidence the first two episodes of this show are two of our Black lawyers. So anyway, sorry, that was like, I had to kind of just brain dump to you, like what, what you talk, because it was a crazy, crazy time. So you make it, you make it through your first year of law school. What do you end up doing in the summer? Now you got to figure out OCI at some point, Foley's coming on the scene. So say more about like what happens next. In the summer, uh, like my 1L summer, I ended up working for the Harvard Immigration and Refugee Clinic. And most of the work that I was doing was client facing. So I was taking on a lot of interviews for affidavits for asylum and also U visa petitions. And so it was a lot of just client working and hearing their narratives, uh, which were really difficult sometimes, and just trying to figure out how are we going to write this affidavit to meet like the elements of the law, to make it compelling, to kind of, you know, to make sure that this gets approved? And so that was most of my summer. There was a little bit of research, but it was mostly client facing. Is that remote at that point or were you able to? It is. OK, see you nine. All right. Yep. Yeah, that was remote. And I think that's what was challenging for me. It just felt so detached. It was like one all over again in a way where I was like, it feels so detached. I know there's other interns, but like I've only seen them in a couple meetings and all the work that I was doing was on by myself or with my supervising attorney. And so it just, there's so much flexibility in doing stuff remotely, but I think my one experience and the summer experience made me realize I don't want this. Yeah, I need to be in an office. I need to be around people. I want to be working with others, talking to others, collaborating, like that's what I thrive in. <laughs> it turns out that as human beings, we really do need other humans. And I know we you hear it all the time, but to have it be deprived of that connection in that way, I think just made it so clear. Okay. So you you have that experience. It continues to be a trying year, but it's, it sounds like a, like a really wonderful 1L summer experience. Then what happens? So then I, I was working with the Dean of Career Services because I sort of had a realization of, I think I want to do a pivot towards big law. And I was in the public, well, I am in the public interest program at UCLA, but because I'm in the public interest program, they don't give me a career services advisor. They're like, public interest will deal with you. And so luckily the dean kind of was like, I will help you. And I told her, okay, well, here's the thing. I want to be in New York. And so there were some firms at OCI that were exclusively doing LA. Uh, Foley was not one of them. And so I ranked Foley for OCI. And then I just, you know, did my last, I think it was the last week of July, we did OCI. And then I found out about callbacks. And then by that point, Amy Moynihan, she had reached out to me and she was like, you should listen to this podcast, by the way. And so for the listeners, Amy Moynihan is our director of recruiting. 
Yeah. And so it was the path and the practice. And she was like, there's a specific episode where one of your interviewers, because by that point I had already been offered a callback. She's like, one of your interviewers, Marcella, she has an episode. And so I listened to Marcella's episode. And then I think I also listened to one of the one that Bob did for advising the recruiting episode. So listeners, that is episode 56. Because the, the fun part about doing the show is our downloads really spike, not surprisingly, around OCI and recruiting, which is when people will listen to you. And so let me just say, episode 56 is when you get the head of our recruiting committee and our director of recruiting going through more of the nuts and bolts and logistics. We didn't re-record it this year. So anyway, go on. <laughs> I would highly recommend listening to that. It was, I had already obviously done my research on the firm, but I think getting that personal aspect and hearing like, especially Marcella's episode, I think she was episode four, but having that personal. And so in making my decisions also, I remember just talking to a lot of three O's who are graduates now, I guess, and talking to them about how they chose a firm and hearing them say, it was the people, it was the people, it was the people. And I was like, what do you mean by this? Like, it's so abstract, right? But when I had my callbacks and especially my interview with Marcella, cause she kind of took me under her wing even before I was given an offer because Amy had also told me, hey, you should apply to the diversity, the fellowship. And then Marcella and I were connected after the callback and Marcella's like, I could help you if you need someone to look over your personal statement for this, or if you need advice or have more questions. And I think to me, the fact that I haven't even gotten an offer and she's, she wants to help me. And I think to me that just, it felt so genuine and not to underscore the other people that interviewed me because everyone just was great. But I think for me also just like that connection that I had with her was, I was like, this is what they mean by the people. I see it now. Now you understand the more and more. Oh, I love that story so much. Yeah. I was like, and now I'm going to be that person. And now you get to be like the people. People will be like, what do you mean, Elena? What do you mean with people? Well, and as you can imagine, it's really full circle for me because I've been doing this show for a little over two years now. But this is the first summer, technically my third summer class at Foley, but the first one was fully remote. The second was hybrid. I've actually, we've actually gotten to meet in person, even though, you know, I'm in Chicago, you're in New York. But I'm really starting to see that how like impactful the show is for students, even if they don't end up at Foley, but certainly as a way to understand our firm. So it, it's very, you know, very heartwarming for me that it was able to help you in your journey because there's so much to understand and to figure out. But ultimately, I think everybody, when they're picking an employer, I know it's like, I just need a job. I want it to be a great firm. I want to do certain practice areas. But the biggest thing you're trying to figure out is, will this place be committed to me? Will they prioritize my growth and development? And I think in you connecting with particularly Marcella in that way and, and others, you were like, I feel like they will. That, and by the way, when students, and I, I try to explain this to people, so when law students ask a law firm, are you focused on diversity and inclusion? I'm telling you that what they're really asking is, will you value me? Will you focus on me? And that's just, just it's so important. It's the, the biggest thing. Okay, so you do choose Foley. We're, we'll fast forward a little because I'm sure I drive listeners crazy. The law students are just like, we want to know what it's like to be a summer associate. <laughs> I'm like, you will wait 40 minutes for that. <laughs> anyway, I want you to know exactly who you're hearing from before she tells you. So, you know, you go, you chose Foley, you go back for your 2L year, which I assume is a little bit better because you got to see some humans. You get to finally see the library. And yes, you joined Foley's New York office. You finally get to really be in New York. So you started with us now. We are in your last week of your summer. You're actually done in a couple of days. What's the summer been like? 
I have loved it. And I think also thinking about the podcast and what I wanted to share, it made me really reflect on my summer. And it kind of made me realize, I mean, in, on day two, our summer program coordinator, we were done with training by three. And he was like, go to your mentors and ask if they have anything for you. And then I go to Marcella, who's my mentor. And I was like, do you have anything for me? And she's like, actually, yes, look up this legal standard. And I want you to write it out so that I could copy and paste it into a brief. And I was just there like a brief that's going to get filed. It was like day two. I'm already like, it's a real case. It's real work already. And it just picked up from there. You know, it uh, most of my summer has been doing research. A lot of it, it seems very intimidating at the beginning, but you do get help from the research assistants from both Westlaw and Lexis. And then we also have research services here. So I've contacted all of those resources at some point, because I think research for me is challenging because I never know when I'm done. Ooh, that's the nervous part. That's when you're like, but did I really find it? Yeah. I'm like, did I find it? Is there going to be a random case out there that opposing counsel will find and it will be detrimental? And it's just, it's really scary. But I, what I've appreciated is the patience people have had, where sometimes if I don't fine. If I may have misunderstood a research question or something, or people will push a little bit, but in a way where it's like trying to help me. And then the client is like, did you check this? Did you try this? And I think from there, I also picked up letting them know what I did try so that they could guide me. I was like, these are the search terms I used. Is there anything else? Is there a synonym that I don't know? And that was really helpful. I think there was also some shadowing. I got to shadow an oral argument and then also an arbitration. And so that was also, it was nice to see kind of more like the litigation aspect than see it in action. Yeah. And so did you come into Foley as a summer knowing you were focusing on litigation? Were you, are you slotted for litigation or how did, how did that work? Yeah, I knew that. I mean, I did speech and debate in high school and I think oral advocacy for me has always been something that I've enjoyed. I did trial at in two, uh, right now Tool Spring and it was by far one of my favorite classes, just learning sort of the art of trial, you know? And I think for me, I always sort of knew, like that's what attracted me about the law. Well, in our New York office, I think, I mean, I, I know we do more than litigation out of New York, but we do have a lot of litigators out of that office. And then I will say for those particularly interested in New York, Anne Seckel, she's the office managing partner of New York. She has been on the show. Unfortunately, I don't have her episode number in front of me, but I wanted to tease that out a bit because for those listening who are interested in Foley, the, the office you go to will impact whether you're joining as I'm sort of undecided, I'm going to try a bunch of stuff and then pick. Um, but depending on what that office does, or maybe the size, it may be the case that's like, you are great. But when we, you graduate from law school, we will have room for a litigator. So you're going to focus on litigation. Or if you're IP, like a medical, I can't even try, I'm trying to think like mechanical engineering or chemistry undergrad, when you're a summer, if you chose us, you're likely going to be dedicated to IP. So I want to make it clear that when you interview with Foley, it, it's going to kind of depend on what our needs are. But some people do start as, I have no idea. I'm going to try a bunch of things. And some people are in more of the boat of like, I focused on X as a summer associate. And that's also why, just tip to the law students listening, if there's things you know that you enjoy, you want to say, you know, I think I'm leaning towards litigation. And this is not just Foley, but any firm. If you come in and you say, I only want to do bankruptcy, but that firm knows they're unlikely to have hot spots in there, they're not going to call you back. 
they'll be like, she was great, said she only wants to do bankruptcy. And so I, I always advise law students, if you have things or experiences that you know, you're like, oh yeah, I'd love to try some bankruptcy, but I'm generally open. Try to stay open because you can lose a job merely by being super dedicated to one practice. And I think something that I really enjoyed about the New York City office in particular is that there's like, it's not a big office. It's a very small, I mean, there's only two summer associates. Milwaukee has 17 to like show the range. So, and we're just two here. And I think because it's just two, it's a bit more informal in project assignments, like randomly seeing someone in the kitchen being like, oh, I, do you have time? I have a research assignment. And by the way, so that emulates also more so what it's like to be a first year. So when you are in the larger summer classes, there is a formal work allocation tool. And I'm sure you all have it as well. But like you said, because there's the two of you, it's more likely like someone stops by and like, hey, do you have a few minutes? Because they know that they know that you and one other person are the go-to summer associates. I think that's important to highlight. That's absolutely right. It was really informal. And so I got to work on a range of things. I mean, I'm working on this big bankruptcy case also that I've been helping with. Then I got to do some copyright research and then just it like a range. And yeah, and I think I enjoyed that. And meanwhile, you're doing that plus the, you know, obligatory summer associate lunches. You have to go out and get to know people. I know there's quite a bit of professional development that is delivered to you all courtesy of our both our recruiting and our PD teams. So I think when you start, there's some level of orientation for a number of days. And then this year, which was the first time in, I guess, three years we've gotten to do this, we got to fly you all out for the summer associate retreat in Chicago, which is another opportunity to learn more about the firm, see each other across the country, and also hopefully have a little bit of fun. I'm just happy you guys got to do it this year. You remember when I was talking to the group, I got to say, this is the first summer class I've gotten to see in person like this because we can't, we couldn't do it in 2020 or 2021. I think that has been by far one of my favorite things this summer was being able to go to Chicago and see everybody, everybody else. And something that I really, really enjoyed was sort of this camaraderie where it didn't feel like we're in competition with each other. We're working with each other. And I know that that's not the case at every big law firm. And so that's a big key takeaway for me. So generally speaking, and I hope every firm is like this, but Foley's my fourth large law firm. So I know there's some differences. Generally speaking, when you come as a summer, you are here because we know we have the room for you to join us as an associate. It's your opportunity to get to know us, our opportunity to get to know you better. But I really think the mindset of a summer associate should be, I'm using this to get to know the people in this firm versus, oh my gosh, if I don't put a comma in the right place, I won't get an offer. I think sometimes summers can actually stress them. Well, actually, I know summers will stress themselves out more and almost focus on the wrong thing. So don't get me wrong. We want your research to be good. We want your writing to be good. Please put time in that. But sometimes they'll let the work overshadow all these other opportunities we're providing, which are by design. We want you to get to know the people in your office, knowing that when you come back, you're not going to have as much, you're not going to go to lunch every day as the first year. And the hope is that you'll get to know some people you really click with or know more about them so that, you know, when you come back, you're like, oh, I really would love to work with Anne again, right? Or I'd love to work with Chris DeGenero or Marcella Jane or whoever in New York because you spent some time with them when you, and people forget about that. Yeah, I've let the, the firm's director of diversity inclusion is wagging her finger in the air being like, don't forget about that. Because I will find you and I will correct you if, if I 
Like it's what, but truly people will be like, yeah, I'm just so tired. I did all the work today. I'm really too tired to go to that thing. And you know, that might happen once during the summer, but you, it is not a good idea to be in a position where you can't seem to find the bandwidth for the social aspect. Also, one of the thrills that I talked to now alumni about OCI and everything, the advice that she gave me is like, treat every social event, coffee chats, uh, happy hours, lunches, whatever it is as mandatory. Treat it as if it's another assignment that you have to do. And she's like, and go in with that mentality because first of all, I mean, like you're getting free stuff, you're getting free food, you're getting, you know, like come on. And then second of all, though, it, this is like your opportunity to talk to people. And I mean, also the other side that I've seen is attorneys are taking time out of their busy, busy schedules to also be there to get to know you. And they're excited to do it, like want to do it. They want to, but they're also, I know that there's attorneys that then leave the happy hour and go back home and do work. And I think seeing that. Yeah. They'll work an hour and a half later because they went to lunch with you. Yes. No, that's exactly right. I guess being grateful that this is like, this is for us. And so I think that that was really also like kind of seeing it on the other side. Yeah. And you know what? And just maybe, just maybe you'll have a little bit of fun while you're doing these things. It's it's possible. I've had so much fun at these. I love the socials. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's, that is wonderful. Okay. So we will start winding down. I'll ask you my two final substantive questions, which is one, is there anything you've wanted to talk about that we have not touched on? And then two, always my final, final question for this show, which is general advice you know, most likely to law students or, or to whomever in terms of navigating, you know, whatever it is you want to advise them on. Yeah. So I think I'll probably just answer both of them together. And my thing would be to be yourself, be your authentic self during this process. I think going into OCI, I was really scared and intimidated that I didn't come from a background of like, I don't have big law for my 1-0 summer. I don't come from like, again, having that, I don't have the social capital. I don't, I also don't even have the cultural capital of like, I don't do stuff like skiing or golfing or all those. If you ask me about golf, I have no idea. Tennis, not me. <laughs> yeah, to connect with people in that way. And so I was just really scared and I was really overthinking, like, how do I present myself? Obviously, like, not necessarily am I going to lie, but like, what do I withhold of myself? How do I speak about myself? And I think what I've really learned and like, I'm still working through it, but something that I'm really trying to lean into is that the stuff that makes me different is valuable and that it's contributing something because the fact that I did immigration last summer and that I speak Spanish, literally on the second day, they were like, we have a pro bono case here for this summer. They're like, we have a pro bono case. We want you on it. And seeing that opportunity and knowing that there's value in the work that I can bring and like the different experiences that I bring, it's been so affirming this summer. And I think that it's something that I wish I had known going into OCI that I could be my full self and it's okay. It's hard to believe. And so I'm having a number of summers on the podcast and one of them is uh, James Austin. He's in Chicago. And we we talk, I'll also talk about this. It's vulnerable. And it's a little bit scary because there may have been some societal narratives you've subscribed to, and that maybe are even true to some extent that you should hide certain aspects. And so there's always going to be this level of judgment where you, you, know, you only want to share what you're comfortable sharing. But like you just said, the experiences you've had, They've made you you, and we absolutely want to know about them. And when you're interviewing with an attorney who only has 20 minutes with you, they're not going down a checklist being like, Aleda, are you an immigrant? You know, are you first generation? No, no, like, why would they ask you that? They want to engage with whatever 
you want to tell them, but I will tell you no matter what your background is, even if you are somebody super well-versed in golf and tennis, like talk about that. Like I don't just, but tell us who you are. We really, really want to know. Yeah, that is perfect, perfect advice, Elena. Okay, so my final, final question is a little bit different since you're a summer associate, but if listeners have questions or want to reach out to you, can they feel free to find you on LinkedIn? Because of course you don't yet, and you will, you don't yet have a Foley email address. I think when you put up the episode, it's just my first name and last name to find me on LinkedIn. Perfect, Elena, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to The Path and the Practice. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and join us again next time. And if you did enjoy it, please share it, subscribe, and leave us a review as your feedback on the podcast is important to us. Also, please note that this podcast may be considered attorney advertising and is made available by Foley & Lardner LLP for informational purposes only. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship. Any opinions expressed herein do not necessarily reflect the views of Foley & Lardner, LLP, its partners, or its clients. Additionally, this podcast is not meant to convey the firm's legal position on behalf of any client, nor is it intended to convey specific legal advice. 